Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Rambling Sesh. And we will be continuing on reading Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark by Schwartz and Gamel. We will start off by reading The Appointment. A 16-year-old boy worked on his grandfather's horse farm. One morning, he drove a pickup truck into town for an errand. While he was walking along the main street, he saw death. Death beckoned to him. The boy drove back to the farm as fast as he could and told his grandfather what had happened. Give me the truck, he begged. I'll go to the city. He'll never find me there. His grandfather gave him the truck and the boy sped away. After he left, his grandfather went into town looking for death. When he found him, he asked, Why did you frighten my grandson that way? He is only 16. He is too young to die. I am sorry about that, said Death. I did not mean to beckon to him, but I was surprised to see him here. You see, I have an appointment with him this afternoon in the city. Next, we will be reading The Bus Stop. Ed Cox was driving home from work in a rainstorm. While he waited for the traffic light to change, he saw a young woman standing alone at a bus stop. She had no umbrella and was soaking wet. Are you going towards Farmington? he asked. Yes, I am, she said. Would you like a ride home? I would, she said, and she got in. My name is Joanna, Joanna Finney. Thank you for rescuing me. I'm Ed Cox, he said, and you're welcome. On the way, they talked and talked. She told him about her family and her job and where she had gone to school, and she told her about himself. By the time they got to her house, the rain had stopped. I'm glad it rained, Ed said. Would you like to go out tomorrow after work? I'd love to, Joanna said. She asked him to meet her at the bus stop since it was near her office. They had such a good time, they went out many times after that. Always they would meet at the bus stop, and off they would go. Ed liked her more each time he saw her. But one night, when they had a date to go out, Joanna did not appear. Ed waited at the bus stop for almost an hour. Maybe something is wrong, he thought. And he drove to her house in Fragmenton. An older woman came to the door. I'm Ed Cox, he said. Maybe Joanna told you about me. I had a date with her tonight. We were supposed to meet at the bus stop near her office. But she didn't show up. Is she all right? The woman looked at him as if he had said something strange. I am Joanna's mother, she said slowly. Joanna isn't here right now, but why don't you come in? Ed pointed to a picture on the mantle. That looks just like her, he said. It did once, her mother replied. But that picture was taken when she was your age, about 20 years ago. A few days later, she was waiting in the rain at the bus stop. A car hit her, and she was killed. Next, we will be reading Faster and Faster. Sam and his cousin Bob went walking in the woods. The only sound were leaves rustling and now and again a bird chirping. It's so quiet here, Bob whispered. But that soon changed. After a few minutes, the two boys started whooping and hollering and chasing one another around. Sam ducked behind a tree 
when Bob came by and Sam jumped out at him. Then Bob raced ahead, hid behind a bush. When he looked down, there at his feet was an old drum. Sam, see what I found? he called. It looks like a tom-tom. I bet it's a hundred years old. Look at the red stains on it, said Sam. I bet it's somebody's blood. Let's get out of here. But Bob couldn't resist trying the drum. He sat on the ground and held it between his legs. He beat on it with one hand, then the other, slowly at first, then faster and faster, almost as if he couldn't stop. Suddenly, there were shouts in the wood and the sound of hoofbeats. A cloud of dust rose behind a line of trees. The men on horseback galloped towards them. Bob, let's go, Sam shouted. He began to run. Hurry! Bob dropped the drum and ran after him. Sam heard the twang and the bow firing an arrow. Then he heard Bob scream. When Sam turned, he saw Bob pitch forward dead. But there was no arrow in his body, and there was no wound. And then when police searched, there were no men on horseback, and there were no hoof prints, and there were no drum. The only sound were leaves rustling, and now and now again a bird chirping. Next, I will be reading Just Delicious. George Flint loved to eat. Each day at noon, he closed his camera shop for two hours and went home for a big lunch his wife, Mina, cooked for him. George was a bully, and Mina was a timid woman who did everything he asked because she was afraid of him. On his way home from lunch, one day, George stopped at a butcher shop and bought a pound of liver. He loved liver. He would have Mina cook it for dinner that night. Despite all his complaints about her, she was a very good cook. While George ate his lunch, Mina told him that a rich old woman in town had died. Her body was in the church next door. It was an open coffin. Anyone who wanted to see her, as usual, George was not interested in what Mina had to say. I've got to go back to work, he told her. After he left, Mina began to cook the liver. She added vegetables and spices and simmered it all afternoon, just the way George liked it. When she thought it was done, she cut off a small piece and tasted it. It was delicious. The best she had ever made. She ate a second piece, and then a third. It was so good she could not stop eating it. It was only when the liver was all gone she thought of George. He would be coming home soon. What would he do when he found out she had eaten all of the liver? Some men would laugh, but not George. He would be angry and mean, and she did not want to face that again. Or where could she have gotten another piece of liver that late in the day? Then she remembered the old woman lying in the church next door, waiting to be buried. George said he never had a better dinner. Have some liver, Mina, he said. It's just delicious. I'm not hungry, she said. You finish it. That night after George had fallen asleep, Mina sat in bed trying to read. But all she could think about was what she had done. Then she thought he heard a woman's voice. Who has my liver? It asked. Who has it? Was it an imagination? Was she dreaming? Now that voice was closer. Who has my liver? It asked. Who has it? 
Mina wanted to run. No, no, she whispered. I don't have it. I don't have your liver. Now the voice was right next to her. Who has my liver? It asked. Who has it? Mina froze with terror. She pointed to George. He does, she said. He has it. Suddenly, the light went out, and George screamed and screamed. Next, we will be reading Hello Gate. Tom Connors was on his way to a dance, the next village. It was a long walk through fields and woods, but it was a soft, sweet evening, and he loved dancing, so Tom didn't mind. He had gone only a short distance when he had noticed a young woman following him. Maybe she is going to the dance, he thought, and he stopped and waited for her. As the woman got closer, he saw that it was Kate. They had danced together many times. He was about to call, hello, Kate, when suddenly he remembered that Kate was dead. She had died last year, yet there she was, all dressed up for the dance. Tom wanted to run, but somehow it didn't seem right to run from Kate. He turned and started to walk away as fast as he could, but Kate followed him. He took a shortcut across the field, but she still followed. When he got to the dance hall, she was right behind him. There were a lot of people standing outside, and Tom tried to lose Kate in the crowd. He worked his way to the side of the building, then squeezed up against the wall behind some people, but Kate followed him. She came so close, she brushed up against him. Then she stopped and waited. He wanted to say hello, Kate, just the way he did when she was alive, but he was so frightened he couldn't speak. Her eyes looked into his eyes, and she vanished. Next, we will be reading The Black Dog. It was 11 o'clock at night. Peter Rothberg was in bed on the second floor of an old house where he lived alone. It had gotten so chilly, he went downstairs to turn up the heat. As Peter was on his way back to bed, a black dog ran down the stairs. It passed him and disappeared into the darkness. Where did you come from? Peter said. He had never seen the dog before. Turned on all the lights and looked in every room. He could not find the dog anywhere. He went outside and brought in two watchdogs he kept in the backyard. But they acted as if they were the only dogs in the house. The next night, again at 11 o'clock, Peter was in his bedroom. He heard what sounded like the dog walking around in the room above him. He dashed upstairs, threw open the door, but the room was empty. He looked under the bed, he looked in the closet, nothing. But when he got back to his bedroom, he heard the dog running down the stairs. It was the black dog. He tried to follow it, but again, he could not find where it had gone. From then on, every night at 11, Peter heard the dog walking in the room above him. The room was always empty, but after he left, the dog would come out of hiding, run down the stairs, and disappear. One night, Peter's neighbor was waiting with him for the dog. At the usual time, they heard it above them. Then they heard it on the stairs. When they went out into the hall, it was standing at the foot of the stairs looking up at them. The neighbor whistled and the dog wagged its tail. Then it was gone. Things went on this way until the night Peter decided to bring his watchdogs into the house again. Maybe this time it would find the black dog and drive it away. Just before 11, 
He took them up to his bedroom and left the door open. Then he heard the black dog moving around above him. His dog picked up the ears and ran out the door. Suddenly, they buried their teeth and snarled and backed away. Peter could not see the black dog or hear it, but he was sure it had entered his room. His dogs barked and snapped. They darted forward nervously, then backed away again. Suddenly, one of them yelped. It began bleeding, then dropped to the floor. Its neck tore open. A minute later, it was dead. Peter's other dog backed into a corner, whimpering. Then everything was still. The next night, Peter's neighbor came back with a pistol. Again, they waited in his bedroom. At 11 o'clock, the black dog came down the stairs. As before, it looked up at them and wagged its tail. When they started toward it with the pistol, it growled and disappeared. That was the last Peter saw of the black, black dog. But it did not mean that the black dog was gone. Now and then, always at 11, he hear it moving around above him. Once he heard it running down the stairs, he never managed to see it again. But he knew it was there. Next, we will be reading Like Cat's Eyes. As Jim Brad lay dying, his wife left him with his nurse and went into the next room to rest. She sat in the dark, staring into the night. Suddenly, Miss Brand saw headlights come rapidly up the driveway. Oh no, she thought. I don't want visitors now. Not now. But it wasn't a car bringing a visitor. It was an old hearse with maybe half a dozen small men hanging from the sides. At least that's what it looked like. The hearse screeched to a stop. The men dropped off and stared at her, their eyes glowing with a soft yellow light like cat's eyes. She watched with horror as they disappeared into the house. An instant later, they were back, lifting something into the house. Then they drove off at high speed, wheels squealing, the gravel in the driveway flying in all directions. At that moment, the nurse came in to say that Jim Breed, Jim Brad, had died. Next, we will be reading Harold. When it got hot in the valley, Thomas and Alfred drove their cows up to a cool green pipe pasture in the mountains to graze. Usually they stayed there with the cows for two months. Then they brought them down to the valley again. The work was easy enough, but oh, it was boring. All day, the two men tend their cows. At night, they went back to a tiny hut where they lived. They ate supper and worked in the garden and went to sleep. It was always the same. Then Thomas had the idea to change everything. Let's make a doll size of a man, he said. It would be fun to make and we could put it in the garden to scare away the birds. It should look like Harold, Alfred said. Harold was a farmer they both hated. They made the doll out of an old sack stuffed with straw. They gave it a pointy nose like Harold's and tiny eyes like his. Then they added dark hair and twisted frown. Of course, they also gave it Harold's name. Each morning on their way to pasture, they, they tied Harold to a pole in the garden to scare away the birds. Each night, they brought him inside so he would get ruined if it rained. When they were feeling playful, they would talk to him. One of them might say, How are the vegetables growing today, Harold? 
than the other, making believe he was Harold, went answer in a crazy voice. Very slowly. The bolts would laugh, but not Harold. Whenever something went wrong, they took it out on Harold. They would curse at him, even kick him or punch him. Sometimes one of them would take the food they were eating, which they both were sick of, and smear it on the doll's face. How do you like this stew, Harold? He would ask. Well, you better eat it or else. Then the two men would howl with laughter. One night, after Thomas had wiped Harold's face with food, Harold grunted. Did you hear that? Alfred asked. It was Harold, Thomas said. I was watching him when it happened. I can't believe it. How could he, he grunt? Alfred asked. He's just a sack of straw. It's not possible. Let's throw him in the fire, said Thomas, and that will be that. Let's not do anything stupid, said Alfred. We don't know what's going on. When we move the cow down, we'll leave him behind. For now, let's just keep an eye on him. So they left Harold sitting in the corner of the hut. They didn't talk to him or take him outside anymore. Now and then the doll grunted, but that was all. After a few days, they, they decided there was nothing to be afraid of. Maybe a mouse or an insect had gotten inside. Harold and were making those sounds. So Thomas and Alfred went back to their old ways. Each morning they put Harold out in the garden, and each night they brought him back into the hut. When they felt playful, they joked with him. When they felt mean, they treated him as badly as ever. Then one night, Alfred noticed something that frightened him. Harold is growing, he said. I was thinking the same thing, Thomas said. Maybe it's just our imaginations, Alfred replied. We have been up here on this mountain for too long. The next morning, while they were eating, Harold stood up and walked out of the hut, climbed up on the top of the roof, ported back and forth like a horse on the hinged legs. All day and all night, long he trotted like that. In the morning, Harold curled down and stood in the far corner of the pasture. The men had no idea what he would do next. They were afraid. They decided to take the cows down into the valley that same day. When they left, Harold was nowhere in sight. They felt as if they had escaped a great danger and began joking and singing. But when they had gone only a mile or two, they realized they had forgotten to bring the milking stool. Neither one wanted to go back for them, but the stools would cost a lot to replace. There really is nothing to be afraid of, they told one another. After all, what could a doll do? They drew straws to see which one would go back. It was Thomas. I'll catch up with you, he said, and Alfred walked out towards the valley. When Alfred came to the rise in the path, he looked back for Thomas. He did not see him anywhere, but he did see Harold. The doll was on the roof of the hut again. As Alfred watched, Harold kneeled and stretched out a bloody skin to dry in the sun. Next, we will be reading The Dream. Lucy Morgan was an artist. She had spent a week painting in a small country town and decided that the next day she would move on. She would go to a village called Kingston. But that night, Lucy Morgan had a strange dream. She dreamed that she was walking up a dark carved staircase and entered a bedroom. It was an ordinary room except for two things. 
The carpet was made up of large squares that looked like trapdoors, and each of the windows was fastened shut with big nails that stuck up on the wood. In her dream, Lucy Morgan went to sleep in that bedroom. During the night, a woman with a pale face and black eyes and long hair came into the room. She leaned over the bed and whispered, This is an evil place. Flee while you can. When the woman touched her arm to hurry her along, Lucy Morgan awakened from her dream with a shriek. She lay awake the rest of the night, trembling. In the morning, she told her landlady that she had decided not to go to Kingston after all. I can't tell you why, she said, but I just can't bring myself to go there. Then why don't you go to Dorset, the landlady said. It's a pretty town, and it isn't too far. So Lucy Morgan went to Dorset. Someone told her she could find a room in a house at the top of the hill. It was a pleasant-looking house, and the landlady there, a plumpy, motherly woman, was as nice as she could be. Let's look at the room, she said. I think you will like it. They walked up a dark, carved staircase like the one in Lucy's dream. In these old houses, the staircases are all the same, Lucy thought. But when the landlady opened the door to the bedroom, it was the room in her dreams, with the same carpet that looked like trapdoors and the same window fastened with big nails. This is just a coincidence, Lucy told herself. How do you like it? the landlady asked. I'm not sure, she said. We'll take your time, the landlady said. I'll bring up some tea while you think about it. Lucy sat on the bed, staring at the trap doors and the big nails. Soon there was a knock on the door. It was the landlady with tea, she thought, but it wasn't the landlady. It was the woman with the pale face and the black eyes and the long hair. Lucy Morgan grabbed her things and fled. The Red Spot While Ruth slept, a spider crawled across her face. It stopped for several minutes on her left cheek, then went on its way. What is that red spot on my cheek? She asked her mother in the next morning. It looks like a spider bite, her mother said. It'll go away. Just don't scratch it. Soon the small red spot grew into a small red boil. Look at it now, Ruth said. It's getting bigger. It's sore. That sometimes happens, her mother said. It's coming to a head. In a few days, the boil was even larger. Look at it now, Ruth said. It hurts and it's ugly. We'll have the doctor look at it, her mother said. Maybe it's infected, but the doctor could not see Ruth until the next day. That night, Ruth took a hot bath. As she soaked herself, the boil burst. Out poured a swarm of tiny spiders from the egg their mother had laid in her cheek. Next, we will be reading The Trouble. The events in the story took place in 1958 in a small white house in a suburb of New York City. The names of the people involved have been changed. Monday, February 3rd. Tom and his sister Nancy had just come home from school. Tom was going on 13. Nancy was 14. They were, take they were talking to their mother in the living room when they heard a loud pop in the kitchen. It sounded like a cork that had been pulled from the bottle of champagne, but it was nothing like that. The cap of the bottle of starch had somehow come unscrewed, and the bottle had tipped over and spilled. Then the bottles all over the house began popping. 
bottles of nail polish, remover, shampoo, bleach, rubbing alcohol, even a bottle of holy water. Each had a screw cap that took two or three full turns to open, but each had opened by itself. Without any human help, they had fallen over and spilled. What is going on here? Their mom asked. Nobody knew, but the popping soon stopped and everything went back to normal. It was just one of those crazy things they decided and put it out of their minds. Thursday, February 6th. Just after Tom and Nancy got home from school, six more bottles popped their caps. The next day, around the same time, another six did. Sunday, February 9th. At 11 o'clock that morning, Tom was in the bathroom brushing his teeth. His father was standing in the doorway talking to him. All of a sudden, a bottle of medicine began moving across the vanity by itself and fell into the sink. At the same time, a bottle of shampoo moved to the edge of the vanity and crashed into the floor. They watched spellbound. I better call the police, his dad said. That afternoon, a patrolman interviewed the family as bottles popped in the bathroom. The police assigned a detective named Joseph to the case. Detective Briggs was a partial man. When something moved, he believed that a human or an animal had moved it, or that it moved because of the vibration of the wind or some other natural cause. He did not believe in ghosts. When the family said they had nothing to do with what was going on, he thought that at least one of them was lying. He wanted to examine the house. Then, when he talked to some of the experts and find out what they thought. Tuesday, February 11th. The bottle of holy water that had opened a week before opened a second time and spilled. Two days later, it spilled again. Saturday, February 15th. Tom, Nancy, and the relative were watching TV in the living room when a small porcelain statue rose up from the table. It flew three feet from the air and fell to the rug. Monday, February 17th. A priest blessed the family's house to protect it against whatever was causing the trouble. Thursday, February 20th. While Tom was doing his homework, at one end of the dining table, a sugar bowl at the other end flew into the hall and crashed. Detective Briggs saw it happen. Later, a bottle of ink on the table flew into the wall and broke splattering in all directions. Then another porcelain statue took off. It traveled 12 feet and smashed into a desk. Friday, February 21st. To get some peace, the family went to a relative's house for the weekend. While they were gone, everything at home was normal. Sunday, February 23rd. When the family returned, another sugar bowl took off. It flew into the wall and smashed into smithereens. Later, a heavy Baru in Tom's room toppled over, but no one was in the room when it happened. Monday, February 24th. By now, the detective Briggs had talked to an engineer, a chemist, and a physic, and others. Some thought the vibrations in the house were causing the trouble. These could come from underground waters, they said, or from high-frequency radio waves, or from sonic booms caused by airplanes. Others said that the electrical system was the cause, or downdrafts coming from the chimney. The popping of the bottles was blamed on a chemical the bottles contained. Tests showed that there were no vibrations in the house, there was nothing wrong with the electrical system, and there were no chemicals in the bottle that would make them pop. 
Then what was causing the trouble? None of the experts knew, but every day the family received dozens of letters and telephone calls from people who thought they did know. Many people believed that that house was haunted. They thought that the poltergeist was on the loose. No one has proved that poltergeists exist, but people everywhere had told stories about them for hundreds of years. And what they had told was not too different from what had happened to the family. Detective Briggs did not, of course, believe in poltergeists. He had begun to believe that Tom might be to blame. Whenever something happened, Tom usually was usually in the room or nearby. When he accused Tom of causing the trouble, the, the boy denied it. I don't know what's going on, he said. All I know is that it scares me. People said Detective Briggs was a tough cop who would turn in his mother if she did something wrong, but he believed Tom. Only now he didn't know what to think. Tuesday, February 25th. A newspaper reporter came to the house to interview the family. Afterwards, he sat in the living room by himself hoping that something would happen, that he could describe it in a story. Tom's room was just across the hall from where the reporter sat. The boy had gone to bed and he had left his door open. Suddenly, a globe of the world flew out of the darkened room and smashed into the wall. The reporter dashed into the bedroom and turned on the light. Tom was sitting in the bed blinking, as if he'd just been awakened from a sound sleep. What was that? he asked. Wednesday, February 26. In the morning, a small plastic statue of the Virgin Mary rose up from the dresser in the parents' bedroom and flew into a mirror. That night, while Tom was doing his homework, a 10-pound record player took off from the table, flew 15 feet, then crashed onto the floor. Friday, February 28. Two scientists arrived from Duke University in North Carolina. They were paraphysiologists. Physiologists? Physiologists? Sorry, I'm terrible at pronouncing that. Who studied experiences like those the family were having. They spent several days talking to the family and examining the house, trying to understand what the, what was going on and what was causing it. One night, a bottle of bleach popped up its top, and that was all that happened during their visit. They did not tell the family about the theory they had that the poltergeist actually might be involved in some cases. According to this idea, poltergeists were not ghosts. They were normal teenagers. They had become so troubled by the problem that their emotion built up into a kind of vibration. Since it was taking place in the unconscious minds, they didn't even know it was happening, but the vibration somehow left their bodies and moved whatever it struck. It happened again and again until the problem had been solved. Scientists had given the strange power a name. They called it psychonesis, the ability to move objects with mental power or mind over matter. No one knew if it really could happen or how to prove it, yet most reports of poltergeists did involve families with teenage children, and there were two teenagers in the family. Monday, March 3rd. The scientists said they would prepare a report on what they had learned. The day after they left, the trouble returned with a vengeance. Tuesday, March 4th. In the afternoon, a bowl of flowers flew off the dining room table and smashed into a cupboard. Then a bottle of bleach jumped out of the cupboard box and popped its top. Then a bookcase filled with the encyclopedias fell over and wedged itself between a radiator and the wall. 
When the flashlight bulb on the table rose up and hit the wall 12 feet away, finally four knocks were heard coming from the kitchen when nobody was in that room. Wednesday, March 5th. While the mom was making breakfast, she heard a loud, a loud crash in the living room. The coffee table had turned over by itself, but that was the end of it. After a month of chaos, everything returned to normal. In August, the two scientists gave their report. They decided that the family had not made up the story, nor had they imagined it. Their trouble had been real, but what had caused it? They said that no pranks or tricks were involved, nor was any magic. As the police had done, they also ruled out vibrations from underground water or other physical causes. The other explanation they would not rule out was the possibility that the teenagers' poltergeist had been at work moving objects with mental power. They did not have enough evidence to prove it, but it was the only answer they had. If it was a poltergeist, they thought it was Tom. If they were right, it was a normal boy like Tom had become a poltergeist. This also might happen to other teenagers. It might even happen to you. This concludes Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark by Schwartz and Gamel. Thank you for listening to the rambling sesh. Hopefully, depending on when you're reading this, it match the spooky season of October coming up. And I hope you guys have a good day.